0: Seventeen. You 42. know I infantry.
1: I can't count past the number of fingers and toes I have, Doc. Get a dice. Ooh, I can roll a twenty. Well, yeah, that still only gives me twenty. I don't think they have more than that for dice, do they?
0: Yes, they do. They have up to a hundred.
1: No, you just roll the tens, like the percent dice. You just nope. two together. No, no,
0: they have a hundred-sided dice.
1: Is it like the size of your house? I mean, how big does it have to be? It's not big. Okay. I-
0: It's in my my gaming stuff. I don't have it ready. All right. You're going to have
1: to show me offline then. All right. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blaze podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we would like to thank you for sticking with us through season one and... The kickoff episode of Season 2 is right here, and so we thought, what better than an Army podcast to have an Army guest? So we've got the one, the only, only, the retired Lieutenant Colonel Brendan Wilson is an Army boy made good. So Brendan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for for having me um, on the show. It's, it's a great honor. I listened to a couple of your your episode, episodes. I realized you guys are pretty fast moving. Um, I'm a little bit slower than that, so I hope you'll have some um, patience with me.
0: We can adjust to that. That's not a problem.
1: <laughs> All right. Good
2: stuff.
1: So that's mostly because we have like ADD and oh, look, squirrel. <laughs> um,
2: I do that too. So anyway, so I'm, I'm Brendan Wilson. Uh, I'm 63 years old. Um, I spent 25 years in the army, retired in uh, 2004. Uh, I went immediately to work for NATO. Um, I was, I worked as a defense planner and diplomat for the next 15 years and um, in 2018, uh, I was diagnosed uh, with PTSD, having spent some time in Iraq and Libya and a few other places, um, sent back to the United States uh, for treatment from the VA. Since that time, I have been um, writing my book, The Achilles Battle Fleet*, it's finally out in publication. I also um, had started law school many, many years prior and I, uh, I took that up again and I'm almost finished. I'll be done in May, I hope, God willing. Awesome, congratulations. Well, thank you. Um, and I'm um, just um very, very happy to um, to be here uh, talking to you guys, to be get, have a chance to um, to discuss with other veterans and also to talk about the book.
1: I had a boomer moment and I forgot that I muted because Alvis was howling downstairs.
0: You're all right. Feet that's, feet,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I don't even know where all those years and all that starts and stops, but we're just going to go with it because it sounds cool. And somebody put it on a t-shirt once. So, you know, it's got to be true.
0: JR, you were just born a
1: boomer. This is also true, but I mean, I'm not as cool as some. I didn't get the T-shirt. Don't tase me, bro. No,
0: no, 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 no. You are not nine years old. You do not just get to randomly use that word.
1: No, no, no. Did you? Uh, you know, you don't remember when that guy was speak? I think it was John Kerry uh, was doing a town hall or something, and this guy was just going nuts, and so they the cops went to get him, and he started screaming, "Don't tase me, bro." with this like frat boy accent. And then when that happened, because he got locked up, and he was a business major, which is why this is funny. He was going for his MBA. While he was locked up, someone else trademarked that, got it on T shirts and made millions of dollars in merch in the like first week because everyone was thought it was hilarious. And when he got out, the momentum was shifted and the business major missed the opportunity he created. I, I had a my roommate was a, a business uh degree chaser, so Anyway, I just always thought that story was funny. Anyway, we're not here you're to like talk to Yes, I've proven it. So normally, uh, we would ask the guest uh, how we or tell you how we first found the guest, but this one was actually easy. So his um, publicist reached out to us, and uh, so Doc made the schedule happen, and here we are. It's it's time for your your favorite questions now.
0: Yay! So we have religion questions, Starship Troopers. The Tomorrow War or Independence Day, which one would you pick?
2: Okay, so I have a confession to make. Um, I liked Starship Troopers, the book, so I know that's it's not the an answer book. to the question. It's a great book. I didn't really like the movie. Um, if you, if I had to pick a movie, I would probably pick Independence Day just because it was entertaining um, to me. So I hope that answers that question.
0: I think Starship Troopers is a litmus test movie. If you are ho- if you are talking to somebody and they go. Oh, and all they understand is the movie, and they don't understand that the book existed first. You know, they're not that into classic science
2: fiction. Yeah, that's right. And I like the book yeah, because it was mil- in a military aspect. So,
1: but the so the movie was the gateway drug for some people to find Heinlein. Like no, I that's watched funny. the movie before I knew there was a book. Although I was a kid when the movie came out, so was that, it came out in what, '93, I think.
0: That Whenever is came out, that I have watched like high schoolers try and throw down with adults about whether or not the book was based off the movie. And I'm like, Oh gosh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a fan, but it does mean that they have stuff to learn.
1: So yeah, it's 97. I just Googled so. it. Uh It was 97. So I would have been 16 years old. So I was at the right age for that to sound cool. And then I read the book, and I remember being disappointed because the movie's definitely an action movie. Lots of pew-pew and, and cool cool explosions. The tactics suck. Like, they totally ignored all tactics and equipment. But That's another rant. But then you get to the book, and it's almost like a – and it's a political treaty almost. It was interesting. I enjoyed it. But, it like, you just have to accept that they're different properties with the same name, and then you're okay. But I think people that love the movie are the ones – that watched the movie first, because anyone that read the books first, I don't think they yeah. could suspend their disbelief enough to like the movie. I think you're right. Yeah. You're. But, pro- uh, you're- I mean, come Jennifer,
0: on. My Dizzy experience says awesome. you are right, but that's okay. You can be right once in a while. So, on to the next round of questions. your question. brain gonna melt? Not my brain, just Jennifer Blackstreams. Um. So I've never heard of this first one. So hopefully you have, sir. The Biggles, which is a nineteen eighty six movie, White Tiger. It is amazing. I know what you put on
1: pizza. (laughs) Yes, no pineapples, as it was intended by God Himself.
0: White Tiger,
1: Jr. We don't do that.
0: White Tiger or Wonder Woman.
2: Okay, so I always thought you guys would know what Biggles was because when when you when I saw that written in the questions, I thought, what the heck is Biggles? I don't actually know that. Wonder Woman is the only um, one of the three that I've seen that. So that's the one I got to pick that's fine.
0: Wonder Woman's amazing.
2: Yeah. So
1: Biggles is a time travel movie in which someone from modern times, although this was filmed in the 80s, so you know the era of punk bands and such, uh, before everyone realized they were all corporate chills. Uh, but it was uh, this guy from in london gets transported back to world war 1 and ends up joining uh, joining a and fighting with a fighter squadron against the red baron it is an awesome movie about time travel and you should all watch it and if you haven't you should all be ashamed of yourselves <laughs> hang your head in shame for you not know I, that's my like you saying this same Christmas right day moment yeah. all right you you would enjoy yeah. the movie it is excellent doc don't give me that look you would love it no yeah. There's planes, there's pew-pew, there's war. It's awesome. It's nice and peaceful enjoyment. (laughs) I never should have given you the power of the banners.
0: (laughs) Okay. Your questions are next year.
1: Yes, ma'am. All right. So we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast love both the fantastical and the scientific. So what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy?
2: My first love was um, sci-fi. You know, we were just talking about Heinlein. I actually read his book Space Cadet, um, which I think was written in the 40s or maybe the early 50s. Um, and then I, I loved um, Starship Troopers. Um, for Asimov, I'd probably say the Foundation um, trilogy, Stranger in a Strange Land. Later in life, in my 20s, I had read the Zant series, or I started to read it, the Zant series by Pierre Zanthi, which um, falls into the um, fantasy thing. But I, I think I just read it to enjoy it. I didn't really get into all the details of it. Um, I didn't follow it up and I don't really read that much um, in the way of fantasy.
1: Okay. Um, What was that doc? Nothing. Okay. I thought you were saying something. So what was your first memory of engaging in science fiction? Was it reading uh, Space Cadet? Was it watching a Star Trek on the television? Where did you first, like what's your first memory where you can say that was Specfic and I loved it?
2: You know, that's really a good question. Um, I've lived a long time and I, a lot of my memories have, um, have uh, faded over time. You know, I have a memory um, and it's, it wasn't really science fiction. I, when I was in high school, I can remember sitting in the outfield during baseball practice and I had been reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and I was just into that so much um, and I was imagining myself that if I could go back, you know, I could um, help the hobbits defend them because I'd be bigger than them and stronger than them. Uh, that's kind of my first memory of um, of anything that was sort of not of this universe uh, uh, engagement of it. Okay.
1: What well, is it about Rings. speculative fiction? What was that, Doc?
0: Lord of the Rings is amazing.
1: It is. Um, so what is it about speculative fiction, sort of the umbrella f- setting of spe- sci-fi, fantasy, horror, all the things, all the cool things anyway, what is it about that that appeals to you, that you love? Um,
2: you know, I think um, as a writer, I like the idea that you you take yourself into a different universe with different rules. And that engages people because that's interesting, um, and then you can sometimes use that to talk about the things that are very important to this world. Um, You know, and and for me, writing the book, one of the things I wanted to do was put the characters in positions where they were under stress and had to make decisions. Uh, And none of those decisions have a good outcome. It's the question of which is the best decision under the circumstance. And those decisions have consequences for them, for the people that they care about. Um, And they uh, and they also change them because those decisions have harsh consequences and they have to own that come to terms with it, and it, um, it changes their personality and how they see themselves over time. So for me, the idea for speculative fiction is it gets you out of this world, but it allows you to address issues which are important to this world.
0: I think that's a very awesome answer, actually. I think, and it really hits on one of my favorite reasons for why speculative fiction is such an important genre of literature but how did your love transition in of the genre transition you into writing stories in
2: it? So that, that's a good question. I've been asked it before. and I don't really have a a perfect answer. I didn't actually set out to write, um, a novel. What I had in my mind was kind of like a, a scenario, something's happening. Um, and I started to write that down. And then later on, the character just sort of took off, um, and and did their own thing. So I wasn't thinking of it in those terms. I wasn't thinking of like I'm going to have speculative fiction and I'm going to try to resolve these issues. Um, it just sort of started to write it um, itself. Just to give an example, the in chapter one. So chapter one was written before the prologue. In chapter one, you've got a young man. He's a pilot. He's on a um, he's on a starship. He gets woken up in the middle of the night, you know, with an alarm. You know, report to your uh, report to your spaceships, and um, and then there's an impact alarm, and there's a thump. And thump is not supposed to be felt on a starship. And he, get, he stumbles a little bit, and he realizes something very serious is happening. Um, and I actually took that from one of the experiences I had in Baghdad. I, was, um, I wasn't on a starship, <laughs> but I was in a bunker, uh, and I was woken up with some uh, similar sort of alarm, and then mortar fire, you know, thump in the distance. Um, nothing really dramatic. I actually just went back to sleep when it was all clear. Um, but that sort of put me into that position of writing that portion of the book. But then the story wasn't really about that character. That ended up being a secondary character. And I went to write the prologue. And the prologue involved um, uh, Lieutenant mei Lee. And she ends up being the um, star of the show. Just kind of took it from there. So there wasn't really a plan. Thanks, Doc, for your patience. <laughs> it's like no, the biggest non-answer awesome. ever. I yeah,
0: I <laughs> love... I love the stories of the characters running amok and not doing what the author thinks they're going to do (laughs) because it, it makes my wild fair brained ideas feel much more normal.
2: So, well, I mean, you know, uh, the the creativity is creativity. You can't really say it has to follow, you know,
0: well, one of my favorite, one of my favorite Pern books came out of that, which is the master Harper of Pern, which it came out way afterwards. And it was literally, and McCaffrey said, I wrote it because the character wouldn't shut up talking until I wrote yeah, the book. <laughs> so um, I think it's, it's great good. when characters are a book. But how are there any specific moments? Because for a lot of authors, real life, and you actually just gave us one, but are there any other moments that you'd want to say, this moment influenced how I write?
2: Um, yes. So, one of the other main characters um, um, is Admiral uh, Jay Chambers. So, I have to give a little bit of background on Jay Chambers. Jay Chambers is actually the name of my friend um, who, uh, who had died after um, um, contracting um, ALS from being exposed to um, chemicals in the first Gulf War. Uh, and he was a very dear friend of mine when my parents were ill and then died. And while I was in high school, his parents took me in. Um, And we went to college together. We went in the army together. We went to ranger school together. um, And he was just a wonderful guy. But that character, the actual behavior of that character was based on me having worked with General Wesley Clark in the 1990s. Um, He was the NATO commander, Supreme um, NATO commander in Belgium. And we went together to the Balkans um, uh, during the uh, the peacekeeping operation there. And one of the... um, one of the th- just to give you an example of um, of what he was like, uh, we went into Srebrenica and you guys will remember that in Srebrenica there was a massacre there um, where 7000 men and boys um, had been rounded up and executed in the local stadium. And then the other Muslim family members had been pushed out of the city. Um, and so, um, you know, General Clark had negotiated the um, Dayton Peace Accord as the military representative, and then he was the NATO commander responsible for enforcing um, and keeping the civil war from breaking out. So we, he wanted to go into Srebrenica, and I went in with him with a very small team of security people. And he was the kind of guy that just liked, like he would want to walk around. He'd say, I want to go over here. You know, you know he, didn't, he didn't follow any plan that any handler had given him. Um, and as we were driving up, a busload of journalists from the OSCE showed up. They were all from Muslim countries. And no Muslims had been back in Turbanica in the three years since the massacre, and of course the the townspeople pick up on the fact that there's a NATO commander here, and that there's a bunch of Muslims here with cameras, which they were not happy with, to see. Um, and so their um, their public affairs officer, I was his public affairs officer at the time, said, hey, "Can we do a, a short press conference?" Um, so I so I asked him. You know, he said, "Yeah, we can do one." So we were doing one on the street, and the security guys came up to me and said. Uh, our translator has picked up the fact that the older men in the village are telling the young boys to pick up rocks and throw them at the general. And he just realized there's there's four cameras going, about 20 journalists there. Um, and I said, what will you do? And he said, well, we'll just get between him and the rocks and then we'll move him out. He said, but we're not gonna stop the press conference. So we continue the press conference. And then this older man who looked like he was intoxicated got up on a little wall behind him and started yelling at him. So General Clark, who actually speaks Serbian, by the way, um, but was speaking English, turned around and said, come on down here and talk to me. And the guy said, I'm not coming down. And so he tells his translator, he says, um, tell him if he doesn't come down here, I won't talk to him. So the guy comes down, and it, so we've got a confrontation now. we got people on one side getting ready to throw rocks, and this drunk guy confronting him, yelling at him. And General Clark puts his hands out like this, you know, with palms up, and he says, um, what can I do for you? And the guy started crying. He got down on his knees. He took General Clark's hands and he said, we're afraid you're going to push us out of our homes. Um, and keep in mind that they're living in the homes of the people that they had killed. Um, and uh, General Clark said, did you vote in the last election? And he said, no. And he said, this is your country. You should vote. And the guy, that I mean, they put down the rocks and it solved the situation. So anyway, that kind of coolness under, under very stressful conditions that could have led to violence and an embarrassment to the alliance is the kind of coolness that I tried to build into um, the character for Admiral Chamber. So that was a long, a long answer to a simple question. Thank you for your patience. No,
1: it's a uh, great answer. Name? So you know, obviously, you mentioned that you served in the U.S. Army. So how do you feel like your time in uniform affects, other than those specific examples, the kinds of stories you tell?
2: Um, so um, one of the themes. In, uh, there, there's really two, two or perhaps three different military themes um, that run through the novel. One of them is a special operations theme. I was, I went to the Ranger School as a lieutenant. Um, I served in the 101st Airborne Division, 18th Airborne Corps, and I did a, um, I did some training um, with the um, Ranger Regiment, special operations training, and then I had dealt with um, special operations um, portfolios when I worked at NATO. Um, one of the things I wanted, one of the things I built into this, was the Alliance um, uh, Marine Commandos, right? So um, they they are the elite of the elite. Uh, they're on this convoy of you know starships that gets caught up into this um, into this galactic war, and th- I wanted to show what it's like um, for um, in the special operations community to get ready for to get ready to com- for combat. So they they train over and over again you know fire maneuver communications medical over and over again. they never get tired of it they never are satisfied they do it over, and, over and then when they actually go into an operation things just come quite naturally to them even under great stress and i built that in i think it was probably one of the things that my editor had said you know this is a little bit too much i don't think it's too much i don't think it's going to be too much for anybody that's ever served in the military um and um, and I and I also built that in so that you could see it from the outside because that's how most people see it. So they have a, They have somebody along on the operation that's not part of their team, that watches them go through, you know, doing a breach, um, uh, you know, movement to contact, um, you know, how to handle casualties. Um, so,
0: in my experience, as long as you keep the number of pages talking about any maneuver or tactic under ten. You're good until the, after that, once you start getting about five I'm gonna have to go start,
2: back and I'm gonna have to go back and count it, count it up. So no, no, no. We'll you see. start
0: having to compare yourself and going, do they exceed David Weber? And, and the answer will be no, so you're good. Just tell your editor, I'm not nearly as bad as David Weber, and he's a he's a New York Times bestselling.
2: Yeah. So. Well, what we did was we broke it up into sections, right? So even if there was a continuous operation because there's something else going on. You know, you're getting ten pages of this, then it switches back to something else, and then you come back to. That. I don't think it was, it was um, uh, overly done, but we'll we'll see. I guess the reader will decide. So, uh, you were you an infantry officer then? No, actually, I was an artillery officer. Uh, but but thank you for the compliment. I heard oh. you say that you're an infantryman. Uh, God bless you for the service. Yeah, That's the hardest <laughs> job in the world. You know, I, I I meet people all the time that don't realize that. You know. don't realize that you know even that they're family members you know i i I met a young man who brought some furniture over and he was a 11 bravo in the in the uh in the um in the gulf war and um his dad was with him they're working together and i said you know i was talking to his dad you could tell his dad doesn't quite understand what that means you know to have to be the one that closes the distance with the enemy that sleeps out in the freezing cold or the the heat Um, yeah, that's that's an incredibly tough job, and I have just you know I was exposed to it at Ranger School and exposed to it as a fire support team chief. But um, my hats off to anybody that's ever done that.
0: My my. Uh, we have
1: a running gag. Hmm? Go ahead, Doc. I
0: was going to say my Go grandfather ahead. used to be an artillery officer, and he told me that is why you learn trigonometry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, now they have computers for it, but um, the. Uh is it, it, there's a funny so I used to actually be a gunnery instructor and what we found out was if you if you just teach the computers how to do our direction and so forth with the computers no one ever really gets it they're just just pressing buttons they don't see it so when they actually have a problem right uh, they can't solve it so we actually went back to teach them the you know what we call darts which is the manual way where you can actually sort of physically mm-hmm. see how it all works out you don't actually do trigonometry that's done in a table but <laughs> um, it, it makes it a little bit easier for people to, to understand um, what's happening, what they have to work it out manually.
0: Yeah. Well, my smart ass then went and told my geometry teacher that unless I was lobbing missiles, I didn't need to know it.
2: <laughs> and how did that, that go? I definitely see you
1: do that. Uh,
0: <laughs> that went really kind of interesting because he was uh, not sure how to react to that. Versus my mom, who, who it got back my tutor, who I told her that to, She looked at me and she goes, "That's fine, but until you get that get to that point, you need to know it to graduate." So sit down. Yeah, that's other. right. Yeah. yeah, I had a.
2: Yeah. Really and then your bad. mom
1: got on the stool and smacked you around.
0: That's not funny. She had, she had been a nun. She had been a nun. My math tutor had been a nun. <laughs> yeah,
1: I believe it. Those are We're the just- worst kind, man. All right. So we've talked about how your time in uniform affects the way you tell stories and the way you uh, represent military personnel because you use some of the people you knew. But how does it affect the way you engage with content as a consumer, as a reader, movie watcher, et cetera?
2: Um, Well, so first of all, I, I don't I'm not one of those people that thinks that, you know, whatever I see in the movie has to be exactly accurate. You know, I realize that what you're doing is you're presenting something to a viewer, an audience that's probably not um, not that um, military. Um, I do like to see things that are fairly accurate. Um, you know, I, I don't like to see, um, like, incredible shots done, um, you know, where, where it's just like, well, that that's probably not going to happen. Um, I don't like it when female officers are addressed as sir, because I've never seen anyone do that, and you see it all the time in the movies. Um, uh, yeah. I noticed
1: that, too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So if, it, as long as it's it's reasonable, and I get the point that they're trying to get, that I don't I sit in judgment on it. And say it's not exactly what I experienced.
1: There's also the suspension of disbelief when you're talking in the future. I remember there was one review exchange where someone said, "Oh, you had Space Marines space, or Marines don't do that," and the reply was, "Yes, but Space Marines might." Uh, and yeah. So there's that you know suspension <laughs> of disbelief if you push it forward just a little bit.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I agree with you. Um I think right. I think you would see all the things that I have the space marines doing are, are completely believable. I mean there are some extra vehicular type of things, but it's not something that, that couldn't be done or would be too fantastic.
0: Yeah, I think probably the right, most not your most favorite, favorite
1: questions, of questions of all.
0: Oh fan questions. So have you had any cool fan art or somebody do a cosplay of any of your work yet? <laughs>
2: I'm sorry. I'm just going to disappoint you on all the fan questions. Um, We're just, um, I don't really have any fans. Um, This is my first book. It's only been out for uh, about a month or so. Um, And I think the the only fan I ever had was somebody stood up at a, at a meeting when I was at Rotary and said, I, you know, I read the book um, and it's a great book and everybody should read it. That's the closest I've ever come to. Hey,
0: you know what? An in-person review is nice. There we go. So you should tell them to go post that on Amazon though.
2: I, I did actually. Ask or let you so film it and put it on your website. Got, yeah, I've I've got three um, reviews on Amazon, so I don't know exactly who they were, but it, it might have been the guy from Rotary, It's possible.
0: <laughs> well, here's hoping that you get many, many more. Um, so, has anybody? Did he ask you for your autograph?
2: Um, he didn't ask me for my autograph. No, no. But I but I did give his. Um, he already had the book, so so I gave an autograph version to his wife when I met her
0: um that was nice. no one has
2: asked me for my autograph.
0: No, so and um, has anybody asked for your autograph yet? No, nope.
2: No.
0: Okay, so how about do you have any weird? Hold on,
1: questions? he had a hold on, he had a really good story for that in the pre show, which is why we left the question about uh, when you <laughs> mailed out the finished. <laughs>
2: um, uh, oh, okay, so um. Yeah, I'm not quite sure when the pre-show started. So, <laughs> um, okay. I did. Um, I did have. Um, I did, as I said before, I used the um, uh, the name of one of my fallen comrades um, for uh, FJ Chambers. He actually um, he was a retired uh, colonel when he died of ALS from having um, been exposed to chemicals in the first Corps of War, and I asked his widow for permission to um, to use his name, which she'd given me. And then 10 years later, when the book was finally, you know, finished, I sent her and all of her um, five adult children um, a copy of the book with a little inscription, you know, um, telling them that their their father was a great man. He was a hero. He saved my life more than once. And um, I got some really nice, um, a really thoughtful note back from uh, two of her sons and from and from her. I think it made a difference to them, but they didn't um, they didn't ask me for that. I just I just provided it to them.
0: I think that's absolutely amazing.
1: So, you've made him effectively immortal. Yeah.
0: So, uh, I think that's probably, I don't know. I think, there your question is next.
1: I know. I just, that's, uh, I'm a firm believer that our friends that are gone aren't really gone if we remember them and we keep their stories alive. So,
2: yeah.
1: um, Yeah. Uh, doc, try to contain yourself, you're gonna make people think you're human and stuff.
2: Well, okay, uh, I'm
1: gonna to to
0: and um, so I we don't get into our personal backgrounds as much on the show, but uh, I my hometown was Dharan, Saudi Arabia. Is that right? Yeah, so how was that? Um, my parents were working for the oil company as expat. oh, oh, my so, I remember when it happened and it was all I was all of like eight years old and I remember freaking out because it's all going on on the news and uh the news and when you're every adult in your world knows what's going on but you don't because I we were stateside on on uh repat at the time okay and uh my dad though had to go back over there after vacation and my mom kept telling me, don't worry, don't cry, because U.S. soldiers are there protecting your mom, your daddy. Yeah, so that's sweet. It was really, so yeah, I was like, damn it, there's onions in the room, because.
2: I can I can tell you, it's emotional for you. God bless you.
0: So it was, it was part of why I became a soldier. There we go. So. Thank you. Yeah, but um, so JR, you should ask your question.
2: All right,
1: we'll, we'll try to lighten the mood and, and let her... Um,
0: I'm fine. Yeah. So <laughs> I have allergies. this
1: that's is it. where we ask you allergies, absolutely. Uh, so could you give us a list of the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? What all have you written?
2: Okay, so that that's easy. Um, start your stopwatch. The um, This is my first book that I've published. Um, my only other publications, um, I was the writer and the executive producer for two short films. Um, one was A Child Lies Here. It's a, sort of a ghost story. Um, uh, and the other one was Doug's Christmas. Um, Doug's Christmas was actually about a, um, a Korean War veteran in modern times. So this is probably six or seven years ago, maybe maybe 10 years ago, um, who's living in Chicago. He's a, he's a, an, a you know wealthy, um, established businessman, but he's never really gotten over the loss of one of his friends in combat back in um, during the Korean war. Um, and he sort of deals with that by at Christmas time, uh, because his friend who had been killed at Christmas time, he deals with that by reaching out to a family in need and sort of bonding with the, um, the children and helping them out and uh, sort of a Scrooge kind of um, um, story. But the main character for that was Clark Devereaux and Clark Devereaux was actually a first sergeant. Um, and a a quad 50 gunner in the, um, in the Korean war. And when he told that story, so now I'm going to start with allergies, but he tells the story. So we, we worked it so that the story of the loss is actually his story, right? It's a real story about being on the quad 50, taking fire. The the vehicle um, catches on fire and his friend is killed. And um, he starts to cry when he tells the story and this is all on film uh, it's being done in a bar, and the young everybody was all emotional, but the young woman who was actually on the camera has tears streaming down her face. <coughs> so those are the only two things that I did. Um, of course, I was a, so, a military officer. I got dozens of publications and you know war war calls, journals and stuff like that, but um, not, nothing like uh, those those things.
1: So this is where the history nerd in me is going to come out for just a second, dear listener. And if you're a veteran or you know okay. a veteran and they've got stories, the Library of Congress is doing a project where they're encouraging all of the combat veterans to tell their stories. There's a, a, historiography, there's a process you go through, so it's documented properly, but they try to document everything in your words on camera. Uh, I will link to that in the show notes. I will track down what that's called and the project involved. I know it's through the Library of Congress because I facilitated a few of those when I was in grad school. Uh, But that is a good thing to do. These stories will be getting lost. Uh, This is especially true if you're a a veteran of the late unpleasantness in Mesopotamia, because most of us send our contact through AKO accounts, uh, which don't exist anymore. So all of that data got lost. And so there's just the the stories are getting lost in ways that we didn't in a – Pre-digital age, so if you've got those stories to tell, even if you know you don't want to tell your families, just get them recorded so posterity can know. But uh, all right, so we're obviously then here to talk about the Achilles Fleet uh, battle fleet series, which is book one is titled Mei Ling Li. So where did you get the premise for this universe? Was it uh, psychedelics, Ouija boards, expired MREs? <laughs> oh,
2: that's a that's a good point. Well, um, you know the the standard view of uh, uh, where it takes place is something you're probably familiar with. It's, six, it's 500 years in the future. Um, it, what's happened in, the, in, our, in our future um, was that the war on terrorism weakened um, the international order um, and uh, because it um, affected its um, credibility. Then came the pandemics of the 21st century, then came nuclear war, then came a century of chaos. And after a century of chaos, the alliance is formed, and the alliance is a federation of nations um, with the sort of a military core. Um, and when they get faster than light travel, uh, the alliance um, becomes a federation of worlds. And so you've got spaceships. They all—it's all what we've seen before, sort of based on Battlestar Galactica scenario, Star Trek, Star Wars—that um, that kind of um, that kind of theme. Um, so not, it's not so weird that you wouldn't recognize it. And I just used that as the, um, as the format for, for telling the story, which is, like I said before, I was interested in what's happening to the characters, not necessarily, um, um, the scenario, the scenario was just the forum to get that done.
1: So you're obviously very character focused as an author in, in the way you, conceptualize the story did that carry through with the finished product or did you smooth that all over
2: in post um no so i I think in the the uh, the characters are what the the story was about um and um as it goes all the way through um you know it's book one in the mei ling lee series um the both the plot and the status of the characters lends itself to uh resolution there are unresolved things that sort of have to be resolved um in the in the follow-on books but I did keep with the characters I think the characters was the most important aspect
1: okay I I like character-driven stories so that's not a bad thing so before we uh go any farther we're gonna take a moment to dig into the cover let me pull that up on the screen uh so how did you come up with the uh the, the cover how did did you make it yourself did you hire that out what's the story what's the story here so
2: so my um my editor um David Himmel did that for me um he had asked me, you know, what do you want on it? And I said, Well, I think you ought to have like, you know, Mailing Lee, you know, maybe in a spacesuit or something like that, and then something behind it that shows that it's science fiction. Um and so he was the one that came up with that. Um I thought he did a really nice job with it. I do have to uh, make it a little bit of an aside here, um, is that the character Mailing Lee is actually based on my ex-wife, um, Sonia Mailing Wilson. Um her middle name is Mei Ling. She's, um Ling. Uh, she's born in Hong Kong. She's also a martial artist, a fifth degree black belt, speaks languages. And so I based that character on her. Uh, just so you know, I have a very good relationship with my <laughs> with my ex-wife, so I'm not worried about her tracking me down. And um, uh, yeah, so it, there was a real person uh, behind that. Um, and it looks just like that picture. You Just ask her, she'll tell you. <laughs> <Not bad.
1: laughs> So, so that you just got lucky that you found like the stock art that worked, or was this a yeah. specific model that you tracked down?
2: No, I, I, um, okay. I I'm not exactly sure what David did. I think he used some stock art and and but they there was some art artistic work done to make that the way it looks, though. but thank you for that. I, I do think it's a good it's a good cover.
1: Okay, All right, Doc. back to you. Question twenty, if the Okay,
0: so what would your thirty second elevator pitch for this novel
2: be? Okay, can I just read it off the back or do I have to say it from... You can read pocket? it off the back. <laughs> okay, so Human Alliance Lieutenant Meiling Lee serves in a backwater assignment as an aide to the Inspector General of a ragtag, ragtag convoy of starships evacuating civilians from a contested area of the galaxy. When the convoy is attacked by an unknown enemy wielding a seemingly impossible technology, Lee is thrust into the center of a galactic struggle as a key leader in the newly formed Achilles battle fleet. As the conflict continues, she is forced to draw upon her martial arts skill and her inner strength as she fights alongside the fleet's Marine Commando unit. In the desperate war that follows, Lee struggles with budding romance, new friendships, and startling betrayals to become the warrior she was meant to be. 30 seconds.
1: So is this, (laughs) Is this more space fleet or space marine on uh, the subgenre of milsf? Stafford? you mix it up a little bit?
2: It's mixed up. Um, so one of the things that I had done, one of my jobs, um, since you guys are, are former military, you'll understand it. But um, I was assigned as an ROTC instructor at the University of Colorado, okay. Colorado, back in 1990, I think, um, and I taught the military history course. So they sent me out to Fort Leavenworth to take the military history course a couple weeks out there, um, and one of the things I worked into the fleet battles was their historical precedent, right? So the very first battle uh, is based on um, Alexander at Guagamala when he defeats the um, uh, the Syrians when he's outnumbered 10 to 1. Uh, he uses certain tactics, and I worked that into there. There's um, there's a scene where it's uh, it's reminiscence of um, Admiral Nelson at the Nile. Um, there's a funeral oration, which is Pericles during the Peloponnesian Wars. So there, there is a lot of tactics and strategy that is sort of drawn from military history. And a lot of it's not, not even mentioned. I mean, it's just there if the if the reader is interested, they could, you know, if they have that background. Um, for example, the initial attack takes place on the 500th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. You know, there's no mention of that. It, nobody nobody notices that. The reader can notice it um, or not. And then there is a, a separate theme. Um, or a parallel theme for what the Marines are doing. Um, so the Marines are training, they actually go on an operation, which is for all practical purposes, a ground operation. Um, it does involve you know, inserting onto a moon with an asteroid and spacesuits suits and a little bit of uh, interesting stuff. But the, you know, the, the breach of the bunker is a standard breach. Um, you know, clearing, um, clearing the areas is standard. Uh, handling prisoners is standard, maybe with a little bit of a quirk in there. Uh, so yeah, those two themes um, sort of run together. And then along with that, there's the martial arts team. I was a martial artist. Um, I I trained and competed um, in the army. I had competition teams that I was a team captain for. Um, And I did work some of that into the novel.
1: All right, so uh, before I dive into the history nerd dumb, because that's speaking my language, we won't, because Doc will give me evil eye. And she gets really stabby when she gets mad. It's, it's gruesome. Uh,
2: and unfortunately stabby, for
1: me, she actually paid attention in biology as a medic. So, like, she knows how to make you bleed, and it's just, it's ugly. So instead, <laughs> Doc, next yeah. question is still yours.
0: It is still mine. So, um,. I think you got into it a bit, but what makes your series really special and unique in uh, the crowded field of Mill SF?
2: Yeah, no, it's good. Um, I realized that um, when I first um, published it, I was um, somewhere around the 500th uh, most popular book on Amazon. (laughs) 500,000, excuse me, right? (laughs) No, I'd love to be in the top 500. Um, You know, I I think what is refreshing about this um, is... One is the character development. Um, I, as I said before, I think that's gonna be interesting to anything and a, you know, um, good good um, science fiction is good literature. Um, there is a an element in there, a theme of a woman in a sort of a male dominated world, trying to make her way. Um, uh, I'll give you a little bit of an anecdote that I wrote into the story, um, slightly different from what had actually happened. But my wife, who has uh, my ex-wife, as I told you, um, uh, Ling Lee is modeled on her. So she, in real life, um, Sonia Mailing Wilson, um, is about five foot two. Um, she's tough looking. You know, she doesn't look um, like anybody's victim. But um, in her office, the the one of the males had um, one of the men there had been was aware that she was a black belt, and he thought that was kind of funny, and so he snuck up behind her and poked her with his finger. <laughs> And she spun She doesn't like that, by the way. She spun around and put him in a submission hole and said, No one guy, likes that. Yeah, this guy's uh, at least a foot taller, 100 pounds um, heavier. And um, she said, can I help you? And he said, no, no, I, I'm good. I'm good. And she twisted him a little bit. And she said, are you sure? I can't help you. He says, no, I'm fine. And she said, I don't like to be touched. And she let him go. Um, not everybody could do that, but I did write that into the book. There's a there's a an incident in the book where Mei Ling is um, is approached by a bully in the gymnasium. Um, he's trying to intimidate her, um, and she basically lets him know that that wasn't a good idea. Um, and that works its way into the story a little bit later on because these characters, you know, they they come back.
0: Well, because the army is, you know, the biggest job where uh, you can move around and. Still
2: find the same people. Yeah, <laughs> isn't, isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, no. that's true. You do see. I have a little uh, anecdote there. I, when I was in Baghdad in, I want to say, 2016. So, really mm-hmm. I retired in 2004. So I was I was a civilian. I was already 60 years old or something like that, and um, I got invited over to the U- U.S. Embassy. Um, for a dinner because I was a NATO representative and I guess they thought that was appropriate so I went over to the U.S. Embassy for a dinner and at the dinner was a woman that I had gone high school with and she was still in uniform right she was a lieutenant colonel she was a pilot she'd been in the first and second war and she'd uh, you know she'd gotten out of the military to raise her kids and stayed in the reserves and then come back in the military so here she was my age you know 60 years old still um uh, still getting shot at. I just have to take my hat off to her. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a small world. And, you know, wow. You know, I hadn't seen her in 45 years or something.
0: Yeah, it definitely can be. And I, I like it when people incorporate that to a point. Because it's, it's important. Because it is a community. Um, but which tropes do you feel... You either hit the best or that you've just taken and gone i'm going to take this and i'm going to twist it this is what we call my tropealicious question which oh there. the
2: trope yeah okay so <laughs> the trope that actually is written into the book right mm-hmm. and it was written into um uh general clark who was kind enough to write the um the forward for the book um is that no plan survives first contact with the enemy and <laughs> if you read the book <laughs> None of the military operations go as planned. They're not even close, right? Um, and uh, there, there's it's, it's one disaster after the next. But what happens is, of course, if you you have to have a plan, right? You can't just sort yeah. of willy-nilly, you know, go out there and hope hope for the best. But because they had a plan and because they know what their overall objective is, then they can modify and change things when things start to go bad, um, which they always do. Um, sometimes terribly bad. You know, sometimes the overall objective is completely uh, unaccomplished, and yet some good comes out of it. And I snuck in something that I'm sure my editor probably didn't like, and that was an after action review when they went to shit. And I did it just the way we did it at the National Training Center, which was what were you supposed to do? What did we do? What's the doctrine? Who's responsible? What did the enemy do, And what are the lessons learned? And I made the admiral walk everybody through it um So that you could see how an after-action review was done correctly. So,
0: I love that. I don't think, I don't think even David Weber's done managed to do one of those in his books.
1: Don't challenge him. That man is prolific. He just might.
0: I could. I could. T- I could message he, him right now, JR. He
2: needs to give me credit then if he's going to do it, <laughs> since I did it first, right?
0: So, <laughs> We're not going to challenge David. No, no. <laughs> so. Right.
1: so um... JR. Oh, I was about to, but you kept trying to talk. So I, I know there's a little bit of lag with you tonight. All right. So let's talk about the story itself. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more? Is there anything you haven't told us about Mailing Lee that, that would be interesting to readers or do we want to move on to secondary characters? Cause you've told us a little bit, you know, she's a, an officer you know in the fleet with some martial arts skills and we sort of uh see a day in the life of her evolving I would have changing crisis
0: her. just saying
1: well it depends she, um, does she threaten to stab me and tell me i'm wrong
2: <laughs> Is that what no, it I mean, one of the things that i do very early in the book in the in the prologue is i put her in a position of having to take command of, in, a, in a crisis um, uh, over a group of people who don't know who she is and don't know what's going on. And I put that in there be, just because that's what military people have to do. Um, and I and I also, be, because she's a woman, you know, she wa- she has to walk onto a bridge, you know, after there's been casualties and she, she needs to take charge of the operation. And she needs to explain to them what they need to do um, and what the overall objectives are. At the same time, lots of things are happening. Um, she's receiving guidance from, from her boss. She doesn't have all the people she needs um, to do this. So she has to start reaching out and making sure that some of those people can come in. And I thought that might be interesting because I suspect that just about every military leader from corporal on up has at some point done something like that.
1: Yeah, I would think so. So what about secondary characters? Were there any secondary characters that jump out to you that were your favorites or were especially memorable?
2: Yes. Um, so um, I was actually told by, my brother's actually a, a retired uh, professor of literature. And he told me when I sh- first showed it to him many years ago that there were too many characters. <laughs> but I don't think there are because I was looking at some other books have them. But um, So there's um, some other main characters. So the two main characters, obviously, um, Chambers and Lee. And we talked a little bit about them. Um, there is also um, a woman who is a... Um, a nurse practitioner. And she's a civilian. She's actually part of the uh, the group of people that is being evacuated. And when the uh, convoy gets hit, she is one of the very few surviving medical professionals. And she gets drawn into to being sort of one of the doctors um, for this group. And because she's a nurse practitioner, she knows how everything works. Like my, my daughter is a doctor, but, you know, you know, if you want to put a Clinic together, you're going to get the nurse in there to do it. Um, so, uh, so she she has to step up. She's um, from Hungary. Her uh, her name is Laura Zicani. Laura Zakhani is actually the name of one of my um, former martial arts students who was Hungarian. When I was in, in Belgium, I, I had trained her and her sister and her father. Her father was a colleague of mine. Um, and I and I asked, of course, her permission to use her her name for that. But she's key because she is has to do the challenge of stepping up um, to major medical operations, which are beyond her previous experience. She also gets uh, sort of conscripted into the Navy as a Naval Lieutenant, and she's not used to that. And she has to try to figure out what her role is and um, how she relates to the other people. Um, and, of course, she gets drawn into the there, – there's a conspiracy um, that that um, she has to try to help solve um, when she goes – so that's Laura Zakani. Then there's an older Hungarian pilot. He's in his 60s. He's actually a former um, Special Operations Petty Officer. Many years later, he's become a pilot. And he is the confidant of Admiral Chambers. In fact, he we find out as we read through it that um, he was the first um, NCO to train Admiral Chambers when Admiral Chambers joined the Special Operations Forces right out of high school. Um, and he's on his way to being retired, but he gets pulled back in. Uh, because of his experience because Admiral Chambers trusts him, um, uh, to go forward. There's a character called Andy Danner. Danner is about 20 years old. Um, he's a seaman apprentice and he gets pulled into the intelligence section because of his, because he's a smart guy. Um, and he goes through this interview, um, where he basically, um, sort of sets the interviewer back on his heels because he's smarter than the people that are interviewing him. And, um, he ends up, um, uh becoming a naval ensign um and um being in charge of the intelligence um, section one of my favorite characters is john raymond john raymond is a chief petty officer he's the head of the maintenance section um he's introduced as um, this tough gruff old guy that knows how all the the vessels work and gets them ready and that kind of stuff and it turns out that when the uh, when the convoy has been attacked and there's been some sort of demonstration of a superior technology that he steps forward, and it turns out that he is a famous physicist who has been hiding from government assassins for the last 20 years by enlisting in the uh, the Navy. And he steps up and he says, I think I know what they're doing, but we need to do X, Y, and Z to try to find out. So part of that mystery, the science part, and that person is based on my brother, uh, uh, Ray uh, Raymond Wilson. So it was Raymond John Wilson, and I made it John Raymond. Um my brother Ray was a PhD student when he got drafted during the Vietnam War and he ended up um, he ended up being a, uh, a um, stockade guard in the military police but uh, they used his his smarts to help um, the prisoners get their GEDs um, he was the education officer which was perfectly meant oh, for um, so I, I, I stuck him in there as the uh, as a scientist and again I got his his permission to do to do all of um, all of that. Uh, and then there was one other major character, a guy named Bowman. he's a reserve pilot. Um, he likes being a pilot he's kind of bored with being a, a, a college professor in his normal life. he's on reserve he's on active duty for reserve duty when this all takes place and he ends up um, being the one applying his knowledge of military history to tactics and ends up moving up um, and into you know greater leadership responsibility. That's it.
1: That's interesting. So <laughs> now I know, Did you do audio? Because I want to see just to see what happens when the guy comes out of hiding. Because that just sounds <laughs> amusing.
2: Yeah. Well, we did do an audio. Um, the, uh, David Himmel and um, uh, Tommy Beardmore, Tommy Beardmore was the producer for um, um, for the audio. And he, he's, he's also the guy that's leading the, um, the, the marketing team. But they had recruited this young woman, Harmony Zhang. Um, she's from Chicago, she had just graduated from DePaul University with an MFA in theater. Um, and she'd done some you know, voice acting um, things before and they recruited her to do the um, uh, the audiobook. and she's really good, really, really good uh, because the book wasn't written with the audio version in mind. I was just writing things down. you know. So for example, at the end of the story, there's a court-martial with 11 speakers, right? And they're, you know, they're all speaking in English, but they're, they have Chinese accents, they have East African accents, um, they have, you know, Southern accents, there's older males and younger women, and she just nails it. And it's really, really beautiful, um, uh, the way she handled it. And it was actually a lot of fun. You guys will love this, but I have a lot of acronyms in the book. So every time I use an acronym, I always explain what it was, because I realized that the reader does, is not necessarily Miller. So the reader doesn't know what OPFOR means, right, or COM channels, or, you know, or uh, lots of different things like that, or bogey. But you don't always know how to pronounce those things because they're not all words in the English language. So she's not military. So the first time she ran through it, you know, we had to um, we had to say, okay, all right, I'm sorry, but <laughs> this is how this is pronounced. And she just did it. She did a really great job. The other thing that was really good about it is a lot of the speakers in the book are um, are Mandarin or Cantonese speakers who are speaking in English. Right. Okay. She's a nat- She's a native Mandarin speaker. So she knows exactly how that accent is supposed to sound.
0: Yeah. And there's you know, a rhythm to that language.
2: There's a rhythm to it. it and certain words are pronounced. And of course, some of the words are in Chinese. I mean, the names are Chinese and they are pronounced differently than you would think. <laughs> so she's got all that right. Um, and Plus, uh, you know, I know you guys have worked with um, uh, audio people before. I didn't I didn't act, I would I didn't serve as a producer, but the producers just love working with her she's you know she is easy to work with she's good she doesn't mind redoing things and the other wonderful thing that happened is um this was my first book and sometimes there are inconsistencies in books that you don't catch unless you hear them yeah um, spoken and some of those she caught and pointed out and some of them you know we caught and we went oh that's that's not going to work so luckily we hadn't published the book yet so we went back and changed the text um but it was a real blessing and I and I that has just come out now the audio version and we're really excited about it i think people are going to love it
1: um, okay so now this is the part where you would we would ask you about bad guys so what can you okay. tell us about the bad guys obviously okay. without giving us spoilers cuz this is spoiler free zone
2: sure okay got it okay so there's you know the the conflict comes in a couple of different ways um, so first of all i'll tell you there's a big conspiracy Um, It's partially revealed, but not fully revealed. So people who like conspiracies are going to love this novel. Um, At the beginning, they have one adversary, that the only adversary they've ever had, and that is a foreign species. That's why they're withdrawing from this one contested area, because of the conflict with that species. And then they get this big, huge attack, which is galaxy-wide. And it doesn't make any sense. Something else is going on. Um, And so the... uh, some of the characters pick up on that earlier and it's one of the reasons why they want to have an intelligence section because they know that they are being misled or they suspect that they're being misled about who their adversaries are. So there's some, there's, we call them the others just because that's all, that's the name that they have. Um, but there are some, um, there are some bad guys in there. Of course, there's the confrontation with Mei Ling in the gym. Um, but that's quickly resolved by her. Um, but what you find out is that there are people who are, that they work with every day, who aren't who they say they are, um, and that's very disturbing. I think to everyone, you know, when you people that you work with, and you find out later that you don't, you know, normally it's not a worldwide galactic conspiracy, but they're not, they're not sh- straight shooters. Um, they're saying one thing and doing another, and, th- and that and that then there are some bad guys along those lines for sure.
0: Okay.
1: So, all right, Doc. Next so one.
0: This is my favorite Go ahead. one of my favorite questions. If your characters knew who you were and the role you played in their lives, how would you fare if they met you in a back alley
1: somewhere? <laughs> all right. But, but so, hold on, Doc. We get to ask this one in two parts because you uh, okay. being a martial artist. So answer as now and then answer yeah. when you were in your prime because that would be a fair assessment for you. <laughs> well, all of these characters can...
2: All of these characters could kick my butt, um, even when I was in my prime, um, the tough ones. But I think your question is, you know if uh, because I, as the writer, I put them through a lot, right? Yeah. Would they be angry with me? Yeah um, I, I don't think so. Um, at least um, at least I hope not. The, um, one of the quotes from Epictetus was, uh, "Don't wish for things the way you want them to be. wish there for them to be just as they are." That's sort of a stoic ideal, which is you know the the path you're on the the where you are now is a result of what's happened to you but it's really a result of your decisions you didn't get to control all the things that happened to you um, but you get to get to control how, control how you respond to them and so you know since you know for those that lived through it i think they would say yeah that, that's okay you know that that was a challenge i mean there, there's a scene at the end after Mei Ling has done some things when they all get investigated it's just just exactly what happens in the army right there's a punishment for the people who did all the work. Um, yes. And they've been, they've been in serious <laughs> yeah. combat. They've lost some of their friends. Um, and they're being investigated by people who, who haven't been there and who can't, under, can't possibly understand why they made the decisions they made. And it's extraordinarily frustrating for her. I don't think she wants to go back and be one of those people. She wants to be one of the people that went with the Marines into t- difficult situations and did difficult things. So I say, would thank me. Okay,
0: (laughs) that's fair. Okay. Um. So Uh, I was
1: expecting a little bit more hubris, and no, I totally kicked their ass. No,
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I I will tell you, this is a true story. When I was 35 years old, I was a state champion for Louisiana for the AAU um, in forms, sparring, and musical forms, and I was the coach for a military competition team. And I one time was in a studio and there was a young man who had never trained a day in his life. And he was hitting me so hard, right, that my instructor actually walked over to me and said, don't take that from him anymore. Just put him down. This is embarrassing. Right. (laughs) So so I let the guy walk into a back kick, which really should have put him down. Um, And he was just like, that that was pretty good, you know. So anyway, I talked to him afterwards. He was a nice kid. (laughs) He was about 18. He wasn't trying to be mean or anything. He, you know, he was just incredibly strong. He was just kind of like the, the Mike, Mike Tyson of, you know, the Louisiana backwoods. Um, and I said, have you ever trained before? And he said, well, me and my uncle, you know, we sometimes hit the, we sometimes box, but he wasn't trained as a boxer because I could have picked that up. And when I got home, I had bruises all up and down my left arm, which was, I was using to protect myself. You know, you should have some humility if you're that guy could have just about be anybody I've ever seen and he'd never trained a day in his life. He was just as tough as that. You cannot tell from looking at them whether they're tough. So I would. I don't think you should say, oh yeah, I could beat anybody. You don't know whether you could beat anybody. You're lucky to come back with your life. and Better to walk away.
1: Fair, fair. <laughs> so, all
2: right, so, Doc, next is on you.
0: JR loves this question, but do you have a favorite character archetype?
2: Um, okay. I. I probably do, and that would be the, the, a female person thrown into a struggling environment and having to come through. Um, and I use mailing a little bit of background, one of the things I did over the years, um, so I've trained women in self-defense um, for decades, but I've also, when we were in Belgium, I had a couple of schools, and we would often train young, young people that were expats. So they were coming through NATO, um, high school students, um, or young adults, <laughs> Uh, there to get their master's degree or something like that, men and women. But a lot of times for for a period of time there, I trained people for the local school, uh, for the local um, church. There was a Baptist church there. And the parents would drop their kids off and pick them up, drop them off, pick them up. They wouldn't actually stay and watch what was happening. Um, And then we would have like a test, you know, after a couple of months. So the the pastor would come and the parents would come. And then... some of these young women, you know, had been, never been taught to sort of stand up for themselves. You know, they hadn't played sports. They were told to be meek and mild and polite and deferential to everyone. And then when they would see them in the test where they would be breaking boards or defending themselves from larger opponents who were swinging clubs at them or sparring and holding their own, you know, they were amazed. (laughs) They were amazed that their daughter could do that. And um, I, you know, I'm not saying that it was important because, they could fight, but I think it's important. It's a tool to to train people to stand up for themselves, and so I actually like that um, that that character. I like people who who uh, everybody underestimates, and then they they um, through their force of character and the decisions they take, they 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 do better. And it, there are there's a male character in the book that's like that too. But that's the closest thing.
0: Okay. So, were there any? Um, this is our sausage question. So were there any scenes that or ideas you cut from the final book that you may want to use in another book later on in the series?
2: Yeah. So actually, no. So I, I just wrote in, you know, I was a new author and you know, I thought I knew best. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my editor at one point, you know, there's a scene in there, for example, where the, where they start a midshipman's training program Um and one of the characters goes through that program is physical training and other things that are going on. And you're into his, what's going on with him as he's exhausted and terrified and doesn't want to embarrass himself in front of his peers. All the things that you know we go through in military training. And, I, and my editor said, I don't see why that's in there. It doesn't further the plot. It's true, it doesn't have anything to do with the plot. But I put it in there partly for character development, partly because I just wanted to put it in there because it kind of reminded me of Ranger School. And partly because I wanted to use those characters to be developed um, uh, later on uh, for, for subsequent um, parts of the trilogy or perhaps spinoff novels with those characters to lead. I wanted to have some basis for for what they had gone through. So I did not have to cut anything from the book.
1: Awesome. All right. So doc, we don't call it the sausage question. People are gonna get the wrong idea. It's how the sausage <laughs> was made or a look behind the curtain. <laughs> I, I understood. It's I not the kind know. of podcast jr just so, likes to give uh, me grief
0: when he can
1: yeah but most of the time i don't do it on air but today was special um so finally uh, what can you tell us about the yeah what can you tell us about the universe where this story happens? so in many series the worlds where the story is taking place is as much a character as the protagonist and antagonist so what can we expect of the universe of the achilles battle fleet
2: so it's pretty standard um uh, universe. So 500 years in the future, they have faster than light travel, but most of everything they have is, you know, for example, I have them using regular firearms with projectiles, you know. Uh, there's not much in the way of, um, you know, individual space lab- lasers. One of the things that does happen, though, is there is a scientific breakthrough, which I use as sort of my speculative application of quantum field theory. So what the enemy is using against them, they don't understand how it's working, Right. It's moving things around quickly. It just doesn't seem possible um, that they're doing that. They're moving people around. And what I had done was I had taken quantum field theory um, and quantum mechanics and sort of applied it in a way that's not possible now. And that has the potential sort of changing the, um, the environment for um, future novels. But otherwise, it's very recognizable as something along the lines of Star Trek or, or um, Battlestar Galactica.
1: So every good sci-fi reader and author knows that if you add dark matter or quantum in front of anything, all things are possible, and the hand-wavium has been achieved. I, know it I thought it was my idea. Doc's an
2: idea. Uh, <laughs>
1: actual scientist, so she gets mad at me for this, but, you know, math doesn't really matter.
2: I don't uh, ever want right, to have to so... take
0: quantum mechanics again.
2: <laughs> you're, you're probably so maybe, the only person I've ever um, met that actually has taken quantum mechanics, so. My hat's off to you. We I thought, thought you didn't like geometry. Right? Yeah.
0: I didn't oh, it was required
2: <laughs> to take it wait, willingly. Wait. Well, you're gonna have to read the book so, now and tell me um, how, how off the mark I was.
0: Well I know with it it's specifically in chemistry, so that that's a very specific area. Okay.
1: <laughs> so it says on the uh, on the Amazon listing for this that this is book one. Of a series of one but presumably you've mentioned more books are coming so where do you see this series going and what's what's next for these characters
2: okay so the um as i said uh before the the book is intention, tension the plot is unresolved right we still don't really know what's behind the conspiracy um we don't know what's going to happen to the alliance because it's starting it's starting to come apart at the seams and the all those characters that i mentioned um, all have some sort of unresolved um, issue. So they're, they're split in a million different um, places. And at some point, they're going to have to come back together. Um, and sort of that's the challenge. Um, I have been in my last year of law school, which is horrible. I'm sorry, it's like way harder than I thought it was gonna be. And I haven't been able to do any writing and I am probably not gonna be able to do any writing really until I graduate in May. Um, and then I will, I will go back to being a full-time writer and I will sort some of these things out.
0: Well, that's good. We are looking forward to seeing what comes next with these characters. So, you you know, with books like this, the science and the technology in the world itself are as much a character in the novel, but consistent rules really help make science fiction science fiction. Is there any tech that you developed, though, from this that you'd want to keep? Like what was your favorite tech item and what do you, that you'd want to keep?
2: Oh, that's, that's a good question. Okay, so I didn't really want to give all of it away. Um, I talked a little bit about earlier, but there is an application of quantum mechanics, field theory, the Higgs boson that has the potential to revolutionize um, the way people live live their lives. It's in the book, it's being used for sinister purposes. But I I think if, um, if that were a real thing, um, I'd want to keep it, and I don't want to say any more about it. <laughs> okay, I'm afraid I'll give it okay. away. So,
0: so we will have you. Well, on. Then, that means you. It, what?
1: I just say that means we can't ask him how he would use and abuse it because that would still be spoiler. Because that's part of the fun. The follow up to that question is, <laughs> what would you I know. use for daily? Views. Now, how would you abuse it? I don't yeah, know. I can't, he, I, know, yeah, I can't say. Fair. Yeah.
0: Probably too ethical to abuse it. So. <laughs>
1: Oh, you're giving me All way too right, we'll much credit. It's Thank you. So ethical. There we go. All <laughs> right, Doc. Ask about aliens because he can answer that one. I hope.
0: Unicorns do exist.
1: Um. So,
0: you have you mentioned briefly that you have another sentient thing or uh entity in this book. How did you go about creating your aliens? Do you know what? Do we know what they look like, or do you? Are you the only one who knows what they look like yet?
2: Yeah, that's good. Cool. I don't even think I know what they look like. The um. So. Um, What you find out is that they've been fighting – they had a war with the others a century ago, right? but they've never communicated with them, Um, and they're not even sure that they can communicate with them. So they don't know anything about the others, Um, and they – because this is a conspiracy, the others are a false flag. So it's not clear that the others will have any – that they will have any – any role in, in the future books. So the aliens were just something to get it going. But the real conspiracy is people against people. Okay. The enemy is us.
1: So then let, let's, let's pivot that then and ask this from a hypothetical standpoint, cause you're obviously an author. You've got your first book, you're here. Um, if you were going to create a, uh, outside of this universe, if you were going to create your own aliens, because this is part of the fun of, of the question, how do yeah. you think you'd do that? Would you let your nightmares inspire you? Would you use actual biological entities and go from there? Would you create it completely out of an imagination?
2: Oh my goodness! You know that's a good question. I think that I think the default action is an alien that's something like a human, um, because that's who we would probably interact with if there were ever. You know, if it was an alien that was so completely different that we'd probably never see them or know them or be aware of them. Um, so, it, yeah, if I had to do it on, on the spot, it would be something like a human, but not exactly like a human.
1: So would you take the Star Trek different forehead ridge of the week or would you yep. um, just make them <laughs> two arms and two legs?
0: You are going to kill you one day. Yeah,
1: that's, there we go. Well, yeah, I was the, thinking about the, the Star Trek thing with the forehead. I was
2: thinking about that. Yeah, I was thinking about. So, the Doc, foreheads. are we talking we, like we, Klingon we,
1: from we the Klingon from the original series, from Next Generation, from Enterprise? Because they all look radically different. All of them would kill you. <laughs> and, and for all, for all, we'll, we'll take we'll take the Next Generation. For all, Worf was supposedly this badass alien, like. He was don't getting his butt tipped don't by do you
0: dare insult Salt you will not survive.
1: <laughs> okay, all I'm saying is the, the little tiny ladies on the Enterprise were always beating the crap out of the, the Klingon. So I'm like, oh, if the military race is getting the crap kicked out they of them by a 5 foot They covered
0: that. It's because he wasn't hitting back hard because he was afraid of hurting them. So
1: stop uh-huh. it.
0: I remember these and episodes we... better than you do. You'll and have another you... discussion at this rate.
1: So, so how do you cover the blonde chick? It was the the security officer before him who was doing the same thing. She was beating up on the Klingon uh, people that board. Uh-oh, she's getting hate mail already. Uh, the, the people boarding the ship. I'm like, not the one get getting it. hate mail. For, You're
0: the one flirting with danger here.
1: All, all they I'm they saying is, is- They are? They are?
0: bringing you a pineapple for, for, pizza uh, on pizza. Yeah, so
1: for the big bad, they get their butts kicked a lot. That's all I'm going to say. There wasn't a lot of competence there. And we'll move on.
0: <laughs> You're going to die all right, send your hate way. mail
1: to Doc docsesca at <laughs> um, Dying. so paper clearly paper. as yes uh, clearly this is winding be down because we're bickering uh, maybe it'll scratch my back it does itch a little bit all right so um, was there anything about mailing Lee book one of the Achilles Fleet series that we didn't ask that you want to tell us before we move on
2: no I think we're good I think we did a good coverage I appreciate it
1: All right. So before we let you go, dear listener, we wanted to remind you uh, that your reviews matter. So share your thoughts on the reviewing platforms. They help the right reader find the right books. So please be kind and speak your minds. Rumor has it that for every hundred uh, reviews an author gets, they get a unicorn. I want to get one so I can grill it and see if it tastes like chicken. Um, But, you know, the reviews matter. And I don't know what he would do with his unicorn. He'd probably like feed it and stuff and just like let it do unicorn stuff. But I'm totally making jerky. You can't. But, uh, anyway, that's why I'm making jerky. You can't really mess that up. Oh, yes, you, you can. It's probably idiot-proof. Yes, you can. We'll talk offline. All right. So uh, do all the things. Review it on Goodreads, uh, on <laughs> on Amazon, all the places you buy and consume books. Review it there. So, Brendan, before we let you go, can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, they'll be in the show notes.
2: Sure. So um, the Achilles Battle Fleet is on, is on Amazon. Um, you can also go to my uh, website, which is brendanwilsonwrites.com. Um, I do um, have an Instagram account, and it's at brendanwilsonwrites. And um, I'm, there's a Facebook account, um, author Brendan Wilson, and you can find me on Facebook, you know, for my own account too. I think that's about it, right there. Yeah. And there is a there is a a Kindle version, an audio version, and a paperback version. Awesome.
1: Outstanding. And you can find us, dear listener, on our Twitter, which is twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can send all hate mail to docsesca at blasters and uh, We promise maybe somebody will actually answer that. I don't know. Uh, you, you can hang out with us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen. It's facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Please join the uh, shenanigans over there. Tell Doc why pineapple does not belong on pizza. It is heretical and should not be allowed to continue. It you does. And follow us on our website. It's heresy. Our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters and blades to be I'm going to start getting mail, like, all over, mailed to my, my PO box with, like, pineapples or something. I can see it now. Uh, we have our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters-and-blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters-and-blades, where you can also support the show on a reoccurring basis, much like a Patreon model. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, we can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com. Backslash author JR Hanley again, buy me a coffee.com. Backslash author JR Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I will keep my co host Doc Garber, uh, Doc Garber, <clears throat> Doc Suska and Nick Garber. Do his wife's gonna kill me now. That's it, I'm done. She's gonna stab me. Uh, Doc Garber, uh, yeah, I'll keep them intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Dang it.
0: <laughs> I love you <it> too. <laughs>
1: All right. So thank you for spending some of your precious time <laughs> precious with us time with- or Nick Garber and Doc Siska. Yo, now you got
0: it right. <laughs> uh, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. Please be sure to go check out this book and leave a review. We love new authors. And of course, bets are dear and near to our hearts. So um, thank you for sticking with us. And this is season two. So this will be fun. Um same we'll be back same time, same place, same wacko people talking about our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and our ADHD ways.
1: <laughs> it's, no. Absolutely. Before before we let you go, this we is do use an question. outline. Move this to the, yeah, we, we really do need to move this to like the religion question is. How do you take your pizza? Do you put the heretical pineapple on no. your pizza
2: sir? No. Um, I, I'll eat whatever anybody else is eating, so I'm I'm open to it.
1: See. Okay, we'll let that one pass. He's
2: a peacemaker. <laughs> you can <laughs> cut right. it if you want. time as a diplomat. Great. Hey.